Original History This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction to The Philosophy of History by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel Translated by J. Sibri Introduction The subject of this course of lectures is the philosophical history of the world, and by this must be understood not a collection of general observations respecting it suggested by the study of its records and proposed to be illustrated by its facts, but universal history itself. To gain a clear idea at the outset of the nature of our task, it seems necessary to begin with an examination of the other methods of treating history. The various methods may be ranged under three heads. First, original history. Second, reflective history. And third, philosophical history. 1. Of the first kind, the mention of one or two distinguished names will furnish a definite type. To this category belong Herodotus, Thucydides, and other historians of the same order, whose descriptions are for the most part limited to deeds, events, and states of society, which they had before their eyes, and whose spirit they shared. They simply transferred what was passing in the world around them to the realm of representative intellect. An external phenomenon is thus translated into an internal conception. In the same way the poet operates upon the material supplied him by his emotions, projecting it into an image for the conceptive faculty. These historians did, it is true, find statements and narratives of other men ready to hand. One person cannot be an eye and ear witness of everything, but they make use of such aids only as the poet does of that heritage of an already formed language to which he owes so much, merely as an ingredient. Historiographers bind together the fleeting elements of story and treasure them up for immortality in the temple of Mnemosyne. Legends, ballad stories, traditions must be excluded from such original history. These are but dim and hazy forms of historical apprehension, and therefore belong to nations whose intelligence is but half-awakened. Here, on the contrary, we have to do with people fully conscious of what they were and what they were about. The domain of reality, actually seen or capable of being so, affords a very different basis in point of firmness from that fugitive and shadowy element in which were engendered those legends and poetic dreams whose historical prestige vanishes as soon as nations have attained a mature individuality. Such original historians, then, change the events, the deeds, and the states of society with which they are conversant into an object for the conceptive faculty. The narratives they leave us cannot, therefore, 
be very comprehensive in their range. Herodotus, Thucydides, Guicciardini may be taken as fair samples of the class in this respect. What is present and living in their environment is their proper material. The influences that have formed the writer are identical with those which have molded the events that constitute the matter of his history. The author's spirit, and that of the actions he narrates, is one and the same. He describes scenes in which he himself has been an actor, or at any rate an interested spectator. It is short periods of time, individual shapes of persons and occurrences, single unreflected traits of which he makes his picture. And his aim is nothing more than the presentation to posterity of an image of events as clear as that which he himself possessed in virtue of personal observation or lifelike descriptions. Reflections are none of his business, for he lives in the spirit of his subject. He has not attained an elevation above it. If, as in Caesar's case, he belongs to the exalted rank of generals or statesmen, it is the prosecution of his own aims that constitutes the history. Such speeches as we find in Thucydides, for example, of which we can positively assert that they are not bona fide reports. It would seem to make against our statement that a historian of his class presents us no reflected picture, that persons and people appear in his works in propria persona. Speeches, it must be allowed, are veritable transactions in the human commonwealth. In fact, very gravely influential transactions. It is indeed often said, such and such things are only talk, by way of demonstrating their harmlessness. That for which this excuse is brought may be mere talk, and talk enjoys the important privilege of being harmless. But addresses of peoples to peoples, or orations directed to nations and to princes, are integrant constituents of history. Granted, such orations as those of Pericles, the most profoundly accomplished, genuine, noble statesman, were elaborated by Thucydides. It must yet be maintained that they were not foreign to the character of the speaker. In the oration in question, these men proclaim the maxims adopted by their countrymen, and which formed their own character. They record their views of their political relations, and of their moral and spiritual nature, and the principle of their designs and conduct. What the historian puts into their mouths is no superstitious system of ideas, but an uncorrupted transcript of their intellectual and moral habitudes. Of these historians, whom we must make thoroughly our own, with whom we must linger long if we would live with their respective nations, and enter deeply into their spirit, of these historians, to whose pages we may turn not for the purpose of erudition merely, but with a view to deep and genuine enjoyment, there are fewer than might be imagined. 
Herodotus, the father, that is, the founder of history, and Thucydides have been already mentioned. Xenophon's Retreat of the Ten Thousand is a work equally original. Caesar's commentaries are the simple masterpiece of a mighty spirit. Among the ancients, these analysts were necessarily great captains and statesmen. In the Middle Ages, if we accept the bishops, who were placed in the very center of the political world, the monks monopolized this category as naive chroniclers who were as decidedly isolated from active life as those elder analysts had been connected with it. In modern times, the relations are entirely altered. Our culture is essentially comprehensive and immediately changes all events into historical representations. Belonging to the class in question, we have vivid, simple, clear narrations, especially of military transactions, which might fairly take their place with those of Caesar. In richness of matter and fullness of detail as regards strategic appliances and attendant circumstances, they are even more instructive. The French memoirs also fall under this category. In many cases, these are written by men of mark, though relating to affairs of little note. They not unfrequently contain a large proportion of anecdotal matter, so that the ground they occupy is narrow and trivial. Yet, they are often veritable masterpieces in history, as those of Cardinal Retz, which in fact trench on a larger historical field. In Germany such masters are rare. Frederick the Great, Histoire de Monton, is an illustrious exception. Writers of this order must occupy an elevated position, only from such a position is it possible to take an extensive view of affairs, to see everything. This is out of the question for him who from below merely gets a glimpse of the great world through a miserable cranny. End Original History This recording is in the public domain.